The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Mark 1, 14 through 22, 29 through 31. Oh, and I was supposed to introduce myself. I'm Emily Etchison. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you very much for that, Emily, and uh, greetings, everyone, wherever you are uh, dialing in from. It's, it's good, as always, to be with you, and uh, as always, at least in the past year or so, I can't wait and, until I really can be with, with, with you, uh, all of you, uh, packed in the same room, uh, enjoying one another's company and fellowship, but, uh, but for now, uh, we are uh, in our series in Mark, and uh, before I get into the sermon, I would like to uh, just uh, make a time-sensitive announcement about something that we are going to be doing online this evening at 7 p.m. Central Time. Uh, we are going to have uh, what we are calling a time of prayers of lament and hope, and that is going to be led by pastors Micah Edmondson, Russ Ramsey, Stacy Croft, uh, myself, and a handful of others from the four Christ Presbyterian and Koinonia congregations. And uh, there should be a Zoom link available uh, on uh, the Christ Presbyterian Church website. We would love for you and anyone that you would like to invite to join us for this time of of prayer, uh, focusing on lament and also hope as we look uh, backwards and also as we look forwards. So now for the sermon. Speaking of looking backwards, this past Wednesday, January the 6th, 2021, uh, was a day for the books. For the first time since the year 1812, the United States Capitol was 
breached. Uh, one Air Force veteran lost her life when she was shot and killed. Uh, three other people were reported to have died. Fourteen officers were injured. And there were images, disturbing images, uh, going around the internet of uh, a hangman's noose on the Capitol lawn, uh, as well as images of mob violence both indoors and outdoors at the state capitol. President George W. Bush said that it was a sickening, heartbreaking sight. Uh, one CIA officer said that this is what we see in failing countries. Now, I am not here as a politician. I am here not as a partisan of any sort. I am here as a pastor. And my primary concern as I consider the events of this past Wednesday is the Christian witness, is the violence that is perpetrated toward the name of Jesus Christ, the one and only true and reigning and forever King, when his name is taken in vain. That's the third of the Ten Commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And what it means to take the Lord's name in vain is to claim that we are representing him, but doing violence to his name by misrepresenting him. There were those identifying as followers of Christ in this event on Wednesday who were on their knees praying earnestly for the cause of violence, holding signs, saying things like, Jesus, help us in this cause. There couldn't be better timing for a series about Jesus the King. There couldn't be a better time for today's message, which we're calling Jesus our Herald, but it's also a message that focuses heavily on another kind of transfer of power. This is the nonpartisan kind. It's the kind that starts in the human heart and grows there. It's not dependent on who occupies Washington or any other city of note. And its effect always is healing. Its effect always is to leave the world better and not worse. And it's a kingdom that can be described with three words if we're going to be participants in it. Costly, compelling, and mending. Costly, compelling, and mending. And so let's talk about how costly it is to live as a participant in the kingdom of Jesus. Verse 22, it says that those who were listening to Jesus' teaching were astonished because he didn't teach like the rabbis did. He taught as one having authority. Now, the, the rabbis during that time leaned very heavily on secondary sources. If a rabbi got up to teach his disciples, he would be quoting constantly secondary sources. Uh, this is where Jesus gets his words uh, in the Sermon on the Mount from. You have heard it said. 
Uh, You have heard it said is actually a common phrase that the rabbis used. And then they would quote Moses. Moses has said, you have heard it said by Moses. You have heard it said by Rabbi Gamaliel. You You have heard it said by Rabbi Hillel. And so on. But when Jesus teaches, who does he invoke? Himself. Whose authority does he invoke? His own. I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. The other difference is that people chose who their rabbis and teachers were in in the same way that maybe people, at least in our part of the country or in a city like ours where there's so many options, people choose their church, they choose their preachers, and so on. But Jesus reverses this as well. Jesus handpicks people in this text and always and says, you, Peter, Simon Peter, you, Nathaniel, follow me. Yes, you, Matthew, follow me. John chapter 15, the 16th verse, Jesus says to all of his disciples, you did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you to bear fruit. This word authority, where it says that they noticed and were astounded that Jesus was teaching with authority, the same root gives us the word author. Jesus is putting himself forward as the author of your life and of my life. Follow me, it says in verse 17, and I will make you. Follow me and I will make you. We get the image of Jesus as the potter and us as the clay. Him as the maker, us as the ones who are being made in Romans chapter 9. The atheist Voltaire talked about how common it is among human beings to reverse this. Voltaire famously said, in the beginning, God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. But a yes to Jesus means absolute surrender. He's not a consultant. He's not an advisor. He's king. You didn't vote him in. He's king. It means surrender to him as your maker, as your potter, as the author of your life. In Genesis chapter 12, here's how it played out for Abraham. The Lord speaks to Abraham and says, Abraham... I want you to leave what's yours. I want you to leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go into the land that I show to you. I'm going to give you a new home, a new land, a new way of life, even a new people. No questions, no negotiating. Leave and follow. This word in the text, and you see this throughout Mark's gospel, this word immediately, there's an urgency in Mark, and there's an urgency in the response that Jesus is calling his disciples, his would-be disciples, toward. Immediately means when you start following him, you, 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 like Abraham, know nothing about your future for certain 
in this life except that he's going to be there. And that's all that you need to know is that he is going to be there. I will be with you always to the very end of the age. That's all we need to know. Bonhoeffer put it this way. When the Lord calls a man, he bids him come and die. And this, this actually became a literal statement for John the Baptist, who was in this text in prison, but he was awaiting his own execution, which did happen because he was following Jesus. It also means dying daily. Jesus says that, that if anyone wants to come after me, they must deny themselves daily. Take up their cross, follow me. It means your whole life now is about leaving and cleaving. Marriage language. Your time, your money, your relationships, your work, your decision making is all now reoriented around and submitted and surrendered to him. Jesus the King. You did not make him, he is making you. You are not the author of your life. He is the author of your life. You've got to leave yourself. You've got to leave yourself. That's the first thing you've got to leave is you. If anyone wants to come after me, they've got to let go of their independence and autonomy. If anyone wants to come after me, it's in the ninth chapter of Luke's gospel, that person must deny himself, take up his cross daily, cross as a symbol of death, and follow me. The word John the Baptist uses here for this is repentance. To repent is to reverse course. To repent is to turn away from following yourself and to follow Jesus, particularly when those two endeavors are at odds with one another. And you've got a fork in the road, and and this way says follow yourself, and in this way it says follow Jesus. You follow Jesus as a disciple of the King. And this kind of language, I understand, is an infringement on the spirit of the age in which we live. The spirit of the age in which we live is about self-actualizing. Success means that you have learned to live by your truth and not let any other person, any other obligation, any other loyalty get in the way of you living your truth as you define what your truth means. Self-actualization. The spirit of the age is also about self-serving. Where time, energy, and money is all invested in the singular endeavor of looking out for number one. And when the subject of charity is brought up, you say things like, well, charity starts at home, when what you really mean by that is that charity ends there too. Your life your, your energy, your resources, it's all about you. That's what self-serving means. And self-esteem. Giving ourselves psychological pep talks, pronouncing wishful verdicts over ourselves, declaring ourselves innocent, declaring ourselves good, declaring ourselves right, 
as opposed to getting our esteem from the verdict that Jesus offers to those who follow him, the king of the universe, saying that you're completely forgiven in me. Therefore, you've got nothing to fear. You're completely blameless in the sight of God because of what I've done for you. Therefore, you've got nothing to prove. You're completely loved as an adopted child of God through your union with Jesus the King. And therefore, you've got nothing to hide. Lastly, the spirit of the age is about self-absorption. One of the commentaries I read in preparation for this sermon said this, nothing will make you more miserable and less interesting than being a self-absorbed person. The more you are about you, the more boring you are to the rest of the world. Imagine somebody putting on their Match.com profile, seeking a self-absorbed narcissist to share life with. Nobody's going to want to share their life with another person who is all about themselves. Jesus prefers to lead us toward the 14th sonnet, holy sonnet from John Donne, where he says, Batter my heart, O three-person God, that I may rise and stand, overthrow me, bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. Take me to you. Imprison me. For I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free. Interesting how he puts those two words together. Only when you imprison me, Lord Christ, triune God, will I be free. We'll get to the reason why in a moment. Nor will I ever be chased, he goes on to say, except you ravish me, Lord. The case for surrender is this. The cost of not surrendering to Christ is much greater than the cost to surrendering to him. The cost of giving yourself to yourself is a much greater cost than giving yourself to Jesus. Who wants to be Gollum? Nobody wants to be Gollum. And for the disciples, they were significant and immediate there's that word again, implications for their lives. Immediately, they left everything. Immediately. They didn't work up to it. They didn't lollygag. They didn't take their time. Immediately, they left everything and followed him. And the first things that they left were staggering. Family. They left family. These are fishermen. And it says that... that, that that the brothers, the sons of Zebedee, left their father in the boat. They were in the middle of a workday. They left the, their father in the boat. Now, in traditional culture, your family was your identity. If you, if you read, if we read Luke chapter 15, and, and we, we see that the elder brother is deeply, deeply resentful toward his brother who has run away from home. Deeply resentful because it was unheard of to leave your own family, especially in the way that that prodigal son did. But here in this context, fishing was the family business. The fathers depended on the sons for income, for livelihood, for work hands. 
And in comes Jesus. And he says things that at first blush sound like hate speech. Luke chapter 14, he says this. If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, this doesn't seem right at first blush because Jesus also said you've got to love everybody, including your enemies. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second table of the law. Love your enemies even, he says. And so so he's got to be, and he of course is, speaking in hyperbole. Hyperbole is when you make an overstatement in order to make a strong point. He's not telling his disciples to hate their family members in reality. He's telling them to hate their family members in comparison. That your love and loyalty toward King Jesus should be so deep, so non-negotiable, and so steady that your love toward anyone or anything else seems like hate in comparison. But here's, here's the twist on this. Hating your family members in this way, in other words, loving Jesus so supremely that your, your, your love for everyone and everything else may look like hate in comparison, and yet hating his family members in this way actually made them better at loving their family members. What do we see happening here after Jesus' teaching? Peter leads all of the disciples, including Jesus, where? To the home of his own mother-in-law, where she has a fever, needs tending to, needs care, needs healing. So it makes him a better son-in-law, not a lesser son-in-law, to put Jesus above his mother-in-law in the hierarchy of his loves. If you follow Jesus into Ephesians 5, you'll see that it'll make you a better husband or a better wife. If you follow Jesus into Ephesians 6, it will make you a better parent. It'll make you a better child to your parents, son or daughter. If you follow Jesus into other texts, it'll make you a better boss or a better colleague or a better employee. It'll make you a better leader. If you follow Jesus and love him first and most and supremely. They also leave their career. But they didn't completely leave their career. These guys didn't stop fishing. We see them later in the Gospels continuing to go out into the water and catching fish. But they fished differently from that point forward. It says in verse 17 that I'm going to make you fishers also of men. And so even in their vocation, neighbor love became a prime motivation and a a prime aspect of their job descriptions from that point forward. They became more just and loving in all of their lives, including their work. Also in verse 21, it, it says that what they did immediately was they observed the Sabbath together. The Sabbath is part of the first table of the law, the first Uh, I'm sorry, the fourth commandment, where it says, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. There's more press given to the Sabbath than any of the other ten commandments. Length is emphasis, just like repetition is emphasis in the Bible. And so here we see Jesus and his busy disciples, professionals, organizing their lives around keeping the Sabbath organizing their work and their play and everything else around the Lord's Day. 
rather than asking the Lord's Day to organize itself around everything else and get lost in the shuffle. But notable here is, as they decenter their work and as they center Sabbath practice, they end up catching substantially more fish. In the same way that if we decenter our work, decenter excessive scrolling, excessive leisure, and other pursuits that inhibit the six days of work and one day of Sabbath rhythm, what happens to them? They end up catching more fish with less hours of work and effort. John chapter 21, it says that there was a catch of an entire 153 fish. Now, there's all kinds of debate throughout history. What's the significance of the number 153? And I think the significance is this. When you catch that many fish, you're going to tell people about it. I think that's about it. Well, are you saying that, 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 that if you start to organize your life and your work around the Sabbath, then that means it's going to automatically you know, increase your bottom line? I'm not saying that at all. The bottom line for John the Baptist was that he got beheaded for organizing his life around Jesus Christ the King. Remember, the outcomes aren't guaranteed. The outcomes aren't what we see in the future. All we can see in the future is that Jesus will be there as we follow him. It can be very costly to follow him. But secondly, it is always compelling, even for John the Baptist, always compelling to follow Jesus. Again, the repetition of this word immediately. They immediately left whatever they were doing and they followed Jesus clearly, saying yes to Jesus felt incredibly worthwhile and was incredibly worthwhile to these people that he called. If you're considering Christianity, maybe you're on the fence. The ultimate question, is it not, is, is Jesus worth leaving the familiar country to follow him into who knows what and who knows where? And this, this has significant implications. It means different things for different people. For some people, leaving your country means leaving the grudge that you have been holding on to into the land of Jesus that's filled with forgiveness and reconciliation. Or maybe for you, leaving the country means leaving your infidelity. Either your infidelity of imagination or your infidelity of practice and live in covenant with a marriage partner. Or maybe your familiar country is the country of deceit and half-truths and obfuscation. And leaving that country means going into the country of Jesus, which is the country of truth. Or leaving the country for you means leaving your abrasive ways and becoming more gentle, or your cowardly ways and becoming more bold and, and being willing to take risks in conversations that lead to greater health. It means different things for different people. But it also means the same thing for every follower of Christ. There's not just, you know, your life. There's a lifestyle that is necessary to follow Jesus where Jesus intends to take his people. And the way that we have described that lifestyle at Christ's Pres is in three terms. Worship, we see them doing this. They're observing the Sabbath. 
be at church every single week of your life, worshiping with the people of God, give generously of your time and of your resources to the Lord and to his kingdom as well as to your neighbor. So there's worship, there's connecting, they're following Jesus, not in isolation, they're all following Jesus in community with others. And serve, serve those who are near, serve those who are in need. If we read through the Gospels, the book of Acts, their whole life is devoted to the service of others and the decentering of self. And the first case in point is Peter's mother-in-law. You know, U2 has this song called Walk On and it goes like this, this is a great lyric. You're packing a suitcase for a place none of us has been. A place that has to be believed to be seen. You've got to leave it behind and walk on. Is it worth it? Well, I'll just tell you anecdotally, I've been a Christian for 33 years. I've been in ordained ministry for 25. I've been in professional ministry for over 25 years. I've never met a single person who left something behind, who left a country behind in order to enter and live in the country of Jesus and then later regretted it. I've never met a person. I've met thousands of people who have left and cleaved. I've never met a single person who has regretted becoming generous. Never met a single person who's regretted organizing their life around their Sabbath as opposed to asking their Sabbath to submit to the rest of their life. I've never met a single person who's regretted following Jesus and decentering self. When do we begin? It's right here, immediately. Following Jesus isn't something you work up to. Following Jesus is, it's a decision point, and the decision moment is now, immediately. But you won't regret it. Because the last point, the last thought is this. Mending is another feature of Jesus' kingdom. You know, Herman Melville and Moby Dick said famously, heaven have mercy on us all. Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. We live in a world clearly, as the last year and as the last week have shown us, that needs mending. And we need mending. Pagans and Presbyterians alike. How does the mending happen? It happens under the lordship and supremacy of a new kind of king. Not the kind of king who sows division, but who sows unity. Not the kind who sows chaos, but who sows peace. Not the kind who sows hatred, but who sows love. Not the kind who demands your love and loyalty, but who wins it with his love and loyalty to you. Before Jesus ever says, follow me, did you know he follows you first? The 23rd Psalm says, surely his goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Jesus calls all of these people by name. Before he ever says to any of us, you must live for me, he says, I have died for you. That's the reason why we live for him, because he has died for us. What better reason, what other reason do we need? And when we reciprocate, when, when, when we give our lives back to him, we don't experience a king who leaves chaos or confusion or division in his wake. 
Tolkien describes the kind of king that we meet when he says, The hands of the king are healing hands, and thus the rightful king will be made known. And lastly, he invites us in on the action. This king is also a physician who wants a nursing staff all over the world, and we are that nursing staff. Follow me, he says, and I will make you fishers of men. Well, fishermen, they, they, fishermen aren't healers, are they? I mean, when I read about fishers of men, I get an image of my grandpa Fred. He, he, was, he was dirt poor. He was rust belt poor. He, he didn't have much that he could give me. But one thing that he did give me was a fishing outing every time we would go to visit him in the small town of Hudson, North Carolina. He said, you ready to go a-fishing, Scott? And we would get up at 4 a.m., and every time we caught a fish, we'd throw that fish into this small, dark cooler. Then we'd take all the fish home. We would decapitate them with his pocket knife, or he would, as I watched, nauseated. He would gut them, he would fry them up, and and then we would eat them. The last thing a fish wants to see is people fishing. And so why did Jesus choose this metaphor because he redeems the image. Fishers of men give life instead of ruining life. The way that Jesus wants to author you and make you is he wants to make you a person of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The kind of fanatic who is never an extremist, who's fanatical about being humble, kind, empathetic, generous, and having healing hands, just like the hands of your king, who was willing to even die for his enemies. Who doesn't want to be caught by a fisherman like that? Speaking of St. Francis, we, we sang a song earlier this service from him called All Creatures of Our God and King. And so I'd like to close this sermon before we sing again with a prayer that's been attributed to him. Let's pray. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is discord, union. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.